Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, live on Sirius XM Channel 111 every weekday at noon east. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show and happy Friday. Yay, we made it. Don't you sometimes wonder whether you're going to make it? <laughs> this has been kind of one of those weeks for me. Today, this is a first for The Megan Kelly Show. We've got two guests for you that um, they've spent time, both of them, with Snooky. Remember Snooky from Jersey Shore? <laughs> We've got quite a pairing for you to end out the week. Former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich. Did you not know about his hanging out with Snooky? We'll get you up to speed. Followed by Mike the Situation Sorrentino. He was one of the stars of MTV's Jersey Shore fame. And you may be wondering, why on earth did she book Mike the Situation Sorrentino? And when my team first said, do you want to talk to Mike the Situation? I said, no. Why would I? Who? Why? What? And then they started giving me the pitch. And I, the more I learned about this guy, the more I was like, I actually can't wait to talk to him. So we'll do it together in just a little bit. And I think you're going to wind up as fascinated by this guy as I became. He's going to talk about his new book. Boy, oh boy, his life took some big pitfalls uh, after he rose to the top of reality TV royalty. He's turned things around. We'll talk to him all about it. But we start today with former Speaker Newt Gingrich with a preview of next week's critical GOP debate and what each candidate needs to do as they look to make their final statements before Iowa. Plus, Representative George Santos has just been expelled from the House. Newt is also the author of the recently released book, March to the Majority, The Real Story, of the Republican Revolution. Pure Talk is once again investing in their customers without charging an extra penny because Pure Talk is now providing international roaming to over 50 countries. That's right, as you plan your summer travel, make sure your wireless provider has you covered at home and abroad. Pure Talk already puts you on America's most dependable 5G network, but now they're giving you coverage in over 50 countries as well. Unlimited talk, text, and plenty of 5G data for just 20 bucks a month. That's less than the half of what Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile will charge you. If you bring your phone, PureTalk's eSIM technology will make switching so simple. Or you can get great savings on the latest iPhones and Androids. Consider making the switch to PureTalk. Just go to puretalk.com kelly to start saving today. And when you do, you will save an additional 50% off your first month. Again, visit puretalk.com kelly to start saving on wireless at home and abroad. Mr. Speaker, welcome back to the show. How you doing? If you can see this or not, this is my screensaver. <laughs> no, it is not. Uh, it is it is Snooky, Callista, and me, and it was taken by Jay Leno. So <laughs> you can see why I keep it. We actually, my crack team went back and and found um, something about you all on the Tonight Show together back in 2012. Here it is, Sot One. 
Us, Nikki and JWoww. It's, you know, it's pretty much about us as best friends. It's not the aspect of like drinking, like Jersey Shore going crazy, mm -hmm. but more like our relationships, my pregnancy, and um, just us as best friends. Mm -hmm. right, and we're getting good reviews. Yeah. Maybe Newt could guest star on the show. That'd be great. Drop in. That'd be awesome. That'd be great. Huh? You could like drink Ron Ron juice and stuff. <laughs> just hang out. Yeah. Do you, can I, can do you I... drink Newt, by the way? Sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Good for you. When was the last time you just. <laughs> When was the last time you just got wasted? Was there a time you just... just th thinking about coming on the show. Thinking about coming on the show? <laughs> well done. <laughs> All your worlds are coming I have, together. I have to tell you, uh, Callista sent uh, Snooky um, copies of Callista's uh, Ellis the Elephant books for children. And Snooky actually read them on Jersey Shore. So it, it was it was a fun moment and... Uh, as I said, I still have as a screensaver, uh, Snooky's right there with me all the time. <laughs> I'll Maybe bet you we'll didn't expect that. To... No, I really didn't. In fact, I was like, tell him no offense that we booked him the same day as the situation. <laughs> and they're like, no, he said no offense taken. Um, with all due respect to Mike. Okay, so let's get into it. There's so much to go over. It's a great day to have mm -hmm. you. What does it mean that George Santos has been expelled? Because my information was nobody in the history of the house has ever been expelled until... They've been convicted of a crime, and he hasn't been convicted of one, but they've been doing all sorts of internal investigations into him. Well, I, I actually think there have been one or two cases where they were expelled where the evidence was overwhelming. Look, from everything that any normal person could get, this guy is a liar, a crook, uh, totally arrogant, uh, totally untrustworthy. And I think, frankly, he just eventually offended so many of his colleagues. Now, if you're a partisan Democrat, then you have a chance to throw out a Republican. That's an easy vote. But, oh, you know, he had basically a majority of the House Republicans voted to expel him. Uh, and the speaker had made it an open vote and said, look, vote your conscience. Now, I think uh, it's, it's always dangerous to do because uh, under our system, you are elected by the people of your district. And unless you've done something extraordinary, uh, which really inappropriate uh, for the other members to render judgment. But I think in Santos's case, and he kind of said that himself. I mean, I, I was amazed he was on Fox and Friends this morning, uh, basically saying, yeah, I know they're going to kick me out, but I'm really a lot nicer guy than that. And I thought, well, this guy doesn't get it. Uh, and <clears throat> I think uh, we, we once expelled a member from the conference, not from the, not from the House, uh, Judge Kelly of Florida, who had been involved in the Abscam scandal where the FBI had a bunch of guys pretending to be Arabs bribing congressmen. <clears throat> Kelly's defense was he did have $20,000 in cash in the glove compartment of his pickup truck, but that's because he was eventually going to take it to the FBI, and none of us found that yeah. believable. And so, you know, so he's gone. So what happens so now? It does what happen happens now to Santos, to his seat? Like, what, what do we do about that seat now? Because the Republicans can't afford there's, well, there's to a, there's autumn, There'll be their... a special election. The, the difference between the Senate and the House is all House seats represent the people of the district, and you can only fill them by special election. In the Senate, because it represents a state, the governor can appoint an interim senator until the next election. Or, but in the House, you have to have a special. And so I suspect... Uh, I think probably in April, there'll be a special election for him. And given the size of the recent Republican majorities uh, in Long Island, uh, there's a very real likelihood we'll elect uh, another Republican, uh, one who's more conservative and more honest than Santos. Okay. 
All right. So the other big news of the day so far is this debate between Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom on Hannity's show last night. I confess to you, I watched a little bit of this and then found it unstomachable. I just I Gavin Newsom is so annoying to me. He's just he <laughs> kept interrupting. He was dying to show that he was a tough guy, which is, of course, like a note to all men. If your instincts are show how tough I am, don't do it. Don't do it. You're about to do something that will communicate the exact opposite of toughness. <laughs> That's how he seemed to me. DeSantis was measured. He was scoring a lot of points. But I wound up thinking like anybody would win against this guy Newsom because he's so annoying and unlikable. What did you think? Well, first of all, Cliss and I <clears throat> watched almost all of it until Hannity talked him into adding an extra 20 minutes. Right. And then we, we, we couldn't do any more. But it was, it was interesting to me at a couple of levels. Uh, partially because it was actually held in my old district now for Retta, and I'm very, very close to Sean. Um, but also, I thought the contrast of the two states, when you look at the record of Florida, the record of California, and then, and I want to pick up a second on what you said about toughness. The truth is, uh, Ron DeSantis was the captain of the Yale baseball team, was served in the U.S. Navy, and I have no doubt that in terms of pure toughness, uh, he is tougher uh, than Newsom. He's probably not as mean as Newsom, but he's tougher. Mm -hmm. uh, but it clear, was clear as, as the evening went on, Newsom and his consultants had decided that he would basically audition to be Joe Biden's best friend and that his job was to attack DeSantis personally. Uh, and, and frankly, he lied so often. I mean, I, I watched Newsom and I thought, and you know, he wants us to believe um, – talking to you from Florida. He wants us to believe that Florida, with no income tax, is somehow a higher tax state than, than California, and that the California price of gasoline, which is $3 a gallon more than Florida, somehow is really good for working people. And you go down the list and you just think to yourself, this is a guy who can say anything with a straight face and count on you uh, to not be prepared to take him head on. But I found... Uh, I thought that DeSantis was better than he had been in the presidential campaign. And I thought that, uh, like you, I, I, I found Newsom sort of so off-putting just as a personality that it was hard to actually take his argument seriously. Yeah, he had no dignity. That's what I was missing. There was no dignity. It just looked like a man desperate for attention. And whenever DeSantis was scoring points on him, he would interrupt over and over to try to talk over the points as just a, you know, that's like a middle school debate tactic, which is pathetic and, and not effective. Here's a little bit of how he sounded with the personal attacks rather than really going after Florida or Ron DeSantis's leadership. He tried to get to him being down in the polls, which he is. That's a whole other thing. Um, but here's here's how Newsom sounded in SOT 8. I, I'm the one that I'm the only guy here. It's a border state governor. You're trolling folks and trying to find migrants to play political games to try to get some news and attention so you can out-Trump Trump. And by the way, how's that going for you, Ron? You're down 41 points in your own home state. So that's how he sounded most of the night, whereas DeSantis was, he had clearly done his homework on the many, many problems in California. The, the moment that, there are a couple of them, but two of the moments that people are talking about more than any other are this one. I'll just let it speak for itself in SOT 4. 
So I was talking to a fella who had made the move from California uh, to Florida, and he was telling me that Florida is much better governed, uh, safer, better budget, uh, lower taxes, all this stuff. And he's really happy with the quality of life. And then he paused and he said, you oh, know, by the way, I'm Gavin Newsom's father-in-law. I mean, that was pretty good. I thought that, I thought that was close to a home run. <laughs> right? You're the king of debating. That was a good one. That was very good. Uh, so, yeah, there was no real answer for that. And actually, Newsom wasn't able to answer it. Then DeSantis brought up the disgusting, filthy streets of San Francisco, which we've been covering in the news now for a year, unless you're President uh, Xi from China, in which case they'll clean it right up for you. Uh, but this was quite a moment with the, what people are now referring to as the poop map in SOT 3. An app where they plot the human feces that are found on the streets of San Francisco. And you see how almost the whole thing is covered because that is what has happened in one of the previous greatest cities this country's ever had. Human feces is now a, a fact of life, except when a communist dictator comes to town. Then they cleaned up the streets. They lined the streets with Chinese flags. They didn't put American flags there. They cleaned everything up. So they're that's willing so to do it for a communist dictator, so but they're not willing to do it for their right. own people. I, just, to, I want to get in with such, the limited time we have left. I want to get there two. So that's the defense. It, it's such nonsense. Is it? Well, look, I mean, I think that at a fact basis, and this is what really puzzles me about California, at a fact basis, politicians like Newsom and the California Assembly have crippled uh, what's arguably the greatest state we have. And it's, it's a beautiful state. And Ron DeSantis was able to say things he liked about California. When it was uh, Newsom's turn, he didn't even try. Um, wow. and, you know, he could have said- Just to clarify, you know, they were father, asked to say something nice about each other's state. And Ron DeSantis yeah. did it, and Newsom didn't. That's right. It was amazing. And then DeSantis was actually very generous in his comments about California as a community, as a beautiful place, et cetera. Uh, and I, I thought in that sense that uh, DeSantis clearly was better than Newsom uh, in terms of the whole evening and the effect he had. Uh, and I thought it was good for him. I don't, I don't think it particularly helps him in the presidential race, which is a different kind of problem. But I did think that he did well. And I can tell you from the view down here, uh, <clears throat> he's a very, very good governor. Uh, and uh, he's a much better governor than he has been as a presidential candidate. Well, the, the thing is, what was interesting to me is there are real questions about whether Joe Biden can see this through. And, you know, whether it's his age, his health, or he just gets pushed out as the nominee. And who, who do they have in waiting? There's, a, there's an article out today uh, saying there's no plan B. Demo Democrats are in a panic, according to Reuters, because there is no plan B. That's a quote from a senior Democrat. If Biden were, quote, suddenly not to run, however that happens, everyone you know would run, says this person. The vice president scares no one. Um, and he said he believes that Newsom is all over the place, partially to remind Democratic voters that he is out there as an option. And that's what other Dems want want to do. Like, we're still here. We're good backups. But let me ask you, Newt, are they? Are they good backups? I look at things like, I'll play this in SOT 5, and I think, this is not good for Gavin Newsom, for us to be reminded of his policies in that crazy state that he's ruining. SOT 5, take a listen. 
to do. But let me just say something about parents' rights, because he Sorry. says California respects parents' rights. This is rich. He's been telling a lot of whoppers tonight. This may be the biggest. In California, if you're a parent in Iowa or New Hampshire or South Carolina, your minor places. child can go to California without your knowledge or without your consent and get hormone therapy, puberty blockers, and a sex change operation yeah. all without you knowing or consenting. How in the heck is that well, you know what? honoring parents' rights when you're bringing people from out of state to go around their parents' backs and getting life-altering surgeries? That is radical. That you know, is Ron, extreme. These kids that is an assault on live. parents' rights. You know what? Ron, it's not this for is, you to decide. These, it's for the what? parents to it's decide. Hmm. I mean, you tell me, because that's a, as clear as it comes when it comes to policy and a distinction. Sure. And, and, if, and if you remember, over and over again, uh, Newsom would fall back into, if you question this, you're homophobic. Uh, you know, so you, you, you weren't allowed to question the, the books that they have uh, for elementary school in California, uh, many of which are overtly sexual and overtly in favor of... Uh, either transgenderism or, or certainly gay and lesbian behavior. And this is in first, second, third, fourth grade. Uh, and you have, I thought it was fascinating. And I would, I would give DeSantis and his team credit. They were very well prepared. They had props, as you pointed out, on, on the poop map as an example. But they had a series of these props that were real. Uh, and that uh, Newsom, Newsom had to attack DeSantis personally, because he couldn't defend California policies. And I think in a national campaign, uh, if the choice was the radicalism of California, which people are physically fleeing, uh, or where or the alternative, uh, I think that uh, Newsom would get beaten very badly. Mm -hmm. Here's another example of Newsom just trying to hurl dirt in an effort to score a point, as opposed to defending his state and showing what what is it that's wrong with Florida again and the way Ron DeSantis governs it, SOT 6. Why the kids were locked out of school for so long. Joe Biden is in the pocket of the teachers union, and so is Kamala Harris. That's why they fought the way, school openings when, when he Shame came in you, there. It's Kamala when they had Harris, that in Ron. It's Kamala Biden Harris, came into office Madam and he Vice brought in President the teacher to union to be Harris. able to do Stop all insulting. these different things. What did you make of that? I mean, truly, you're the expert of debate performances. So what what do you make of that moment? Well, I mean, first of all, my my general principle was to be quiet uh, until there was an opening and then to be very decisive and very explicit. And I think that that Newsom lowers himself. I think my only advice to DeSantis would have been that he would have been better off at times to have stopped and said, OK, I'm going to yield to you to finish your statement, and then I expect you to allow me to finish mine. I think had he done that two or three times, he would have psychologically taken control of the stage uh, because Newsom just couldn't, con you know, Newsom's entire goal, it's a little bit reminds me of a squid, which uses black ink to hide from predators as it, as it uh, goes away. He was throwing up the black ink of personality attacks and, you know, I mean, I don't know how you pronounce Kamala Harris's name. And frankly, she's such a bad vice president. I'm not sure I'm willing to spend a lot of time learning. Um, she's, <laughs> I think, by the way, the most likely Democratic nominee if Biden steps down. I mean, people shouldn't kid themselves. Uh, the idea inside the Democratic Party that you are going to reject a black female vice president uh, without having a total rebellion 
uh, in the and, and black women is the ultimate base of the Democratic Party right now. And uh, I think that it'll be very hard for them to uh, push her to one side. And she represents the same San Francisco mafia uh, that uh, that Gavin Newsom does. They're, they're both from San Francisco. They both represent the same power structure. Mm, that's a very good point. You know, you're right about the way De DeSantis should have handled that. He did do that at one of the debates when he said, we're all adults here. We're not going to raise our hands. If you want us to answer a question, we'll do it. And he kind of put the Fox News moderators right. in their place. And it was a strong moment for him. You know, and you're right. I, I hadn't even considered that. The, the candidates watching this right now, Mr. Speaker, and I've been told that they're all watching in advance of the Wednesday <laughs> debate to figure out if they can glean any clues on the questions. You should do that. Don't make me be the traffic cop. You be your own traffic cop. Tell the other person to shut up until you're done or cede the floor so that they look like the rude interrupter they are. And then you can have the floor back. But you're right. Why why leave it all up to the moderator? Why not you take control? Well, and, it, and frankly, you reduce your stature. I mean, you're talking here about the presidency of the United States. People, and this is a weakness both for Trump, because at times he uh, I think he shoots himself in the foot, and it's a weakness for Biden, because there are periods where he looks like he doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, and both of those are less than what we want in a president. We want confidence, calmness, a sense of, of domination. You want a president to be strong because the world is dangerous and the problems are hard. And when you get sucked into seventh grade, and I thought you had it exactly right earlier, you get sucked into seventh grade debates yelling at each other, you just shrink. You, 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 be, you don't look like an alternative president. You look like some person out here who doesn't know what they're doing. Mm hmm. So what what did it all amount to? It was interesting, you know, mildly uh, in terms of the differences between the way you govern California versus the way uh, DeSantis is governing Florida. But DeSantis, I mean, there's the latest poll out today. It's the messenger, which is a new news service slash Harris poll and uh, conducted online. Four thousand registered voters. Trump is at 68. DeSantis is at nine. Sixty eight to nine. Haley's at seven. Ramaswamy's at four. That's, I mean, like, how does somebody overcome oh. that kind of a deficit? I don't know if it's debating Gavin Newsom on Hannity. I, mean, I think I think it was a clever thing to do. And in the long run evolution of Ron DeSantis, uh, not this presidential race, but just in the long run, it was a good thing to do. I, I personally think the more we can draw a contrast between the blue states that are losing population and the red states that are gaining and recognize that it's actually policy differences. Uh, and that uh, between taxes and crime and uh, bad education system, uh, these, these huge states that were historically dominant are all just hemorrhaging people who are leaving. I mean, they're voting with their feet. But I think also my, my personal view is when you talk, if you're only talking about the nomination that Barring some enormous health problem, uh, Trump is the nominee, period. It's over. Uh, and that the poll today, is a, he's a little stronger than he was a week ago, uh, partly, I suspect, because DeSantis is weaker, but also because uh, on the Republican side, uh, and with at least half of the independents, there's a belief that Trump is not actually a candidate. Trump is the leader of a movement, and the emotional bond between the leader of a movement and their supporters is very different than the bond of a, of a candidate. 
And with each passing month, I think Trump has gained confidence. Yeah, I think he's gotten better, frankly. Uh, and I think that <clears throat> when you watch, you know, the other day, I mean, Nikki Haley's having a nice little, little boomlet, uh, which in the end won't amount to much, but it will increase her market value after the campaign. But um, Trump goes to South Carolina, goes out on the field at the Clemson University of South Carolina game. People are standing, cheering, screaming Trump. And 81 Republican leaders in South Carolina endorse him, most of whom have been for Tim Scott. And now they're for Donald Trump. Well, he's already ahead of her, I think, by 43 points in South Carolina. Uh, he's as, as Newsom pointed out, he's, he's ahead of uh, DeSantis in Florida by 41 points. Um, I, I, from the people I talked to in Iowa, uh, he Trump's almost certainly going to win the caucus by a huge margin. Uh, there'll be some effort to stop him in New Hampshire, uh, but I doubt if it'll work. And in a sense, what you're seeing as a debate next week is who gets to be the alternative to Trump. And, and unfortunately for Ron DeSantis, who, as I said, is a very, very good governor, uh, his campaign was so badly put together early on, and the Trump people were so smart at just taking him apart that the major money class that had been backing him have all given up now. And so they're all shifting over to Haley. Nikki will have a surge of resources, uh, and, and so she'll look very, very good. But remember, there are two races here. There's the race for the Donald Trump 55 to 70%. And then there's the race among the whoever's left. And if you're at 6% or 8% or 9%, and we're not talking about, as you know very well, we're not talking about very far away. I think it's about six weeks to the Iowa caucus. Um, and I don't see any evidence right now that, that anybody's going to put breakthrough in Iowa. And if Trump wins Iowa by the kind of margin he's capable of and then pivots and wins New Hampshire, basically the nomination's over. Uh, and that'll still be in January. And now you'll be in a general election and Trump will focus entirely on beating Biden. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, do you obviously these candidates are showing up next week because they think they still have a chance. Do you think they're sure. thinking they still have a chance the traditional way? You know, I've been calling it the inside straight way where something happens, you know. Bob Vanderplatz of the family leader, he's just, he's endorsed DeSantis. He said, I was going to rise up against Trump. It's he thinks he's always backed the the winner since 2008 in Iowa. He's always been able to pick the one who nobody, nobody else saw coming. So what if he's right? And somehow let's say DeSantis wins Iowa. And then I don't know what happens. The money people in New Hampshire, maybe they still stick with Nikki, but then you get down to South Carolina Trump has some sort of health issue. And before you know it, DeSantis is winning the old fashioned way. Do you think they're thinking about that? Or do you think they're all just thinking Trump's probably going to jail? Something devastating is going to happen to Trump. And I need to be the shiny, beautiful alternative over here. And I'm, I got to fight the rest of these people to make sure I'm that person. Well, I think two things happen to you. I mean, first of all, you're in the campaign. <clears throat> You have to believe you have a chance. Otherwise, how do you get up in the morning and go stand at the factory gate or go stand uh, you know, at the, the local uh, coffee shop? So at some level, they all, they all have this mythical sense. And the only two that it makes any sense for are, are uh, 
uh, Nikki Haley and uh, Ron DeSantis. The others clearly have no chance of any kind. Uh, second, you you kind of think, well, maybe lightning will strike. So, you know, as you said, a major health problem for Trump or something. Um, some of their consultants may think that getting convicted would matter. I personally don't think it would matter in the primaries. It might matter in the general. But a majority of Republicans have said to the pollsters over and over again, they will vote for Trump even if he's convicted uh, because they don't believe in the process. They all think yeah. it's a lie. They all think it's political. So, And they know uh, the juries but the, but are all far thing. left. For the most part, they're going to be all far left. Except yeah, that's right. I mean, I mean you, have, you have a hard left judge in Washington, D.C., in a constituency where Trump got 5%. Now, does anybody yeah. seriously believe you can get justice before your peers in that environment? So, but there's another thing that's, that's human. How do they get out? You know, I mean, it's one thing if you're down at zero and you have no money, but if, if you're Ron DeSantis, do you really want to just quit? I mean, isn't it, isn't it almost better to get beaten than to just step out? And so mm. they also get caught up. I mean, I thought Tim Smith, uh, or rather Tim Scott, uh, was, was very smart and showed great maturity in saying, you know, I'm not moving the needle and there's no point in my doing this. And so he dropped out with dignity. Uh, but I think the, the amount of ego and intensity that both Haley and DeSantis have in this thing, they'd have, it'd be very hard for them to drop out before they lose. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? Their voters have the right to pull the lever for them and say, I don't care That's if right. Trump's the favorite. You know, I, I, this is a moral issue for me, whatever it is. So it's not over till it's over. But what do you think, you know, if you're in their position, I agree with you, Vivek, I don't know, he's in it at this point for other reasons. He, he has zero chance, uh, according to these polls, at least. It, same for Burgum, same for, I mean, what's his name is still in it? Asa Hutchinson has not yet dropped out. <laughs> they have zero percent, but okay, there's, they're not ready to go. That's up to them. I, th I think they have there are different patterns here. Burgum is a billionaire. Um, he's been governor and doesn't cost him much. And frankly, if he drops out, he's going to be back in North, in North Dakota. Um, I think Ramaswamy is very clever. I've done three podcasts that, that Newt's World with him. And uh, he's, he's created two companies that are worth over a billion dollars each. I think he's very, very intelligent. But I think he, he really underestimated sort of having a second act. And so he was in, he was in, interesting the first debate and then he became boring and then he became irritating. And uh, I think he actually hurts himself now by staying in. I think he'd be much better off. You know, he's gotten his name out there. People sort of know who he is and he ought to start thinking about what's his next dance, not hanging on to this dance because not only is it not going to work for him, but the more he is irritating and the more he is too much of a sort of, it reminds me of the, the seventh grade chemistry major who's a know-it-all and everybody else in, stand, in the class can't stand him. Uh, and, and he comes across that way. Uh, and so what was interesting the first couple of times becomes increasingly irritating and I think actually weakens him. Mm. I think he's running to be a, the Trump alternative that's the most Trumpy. That's where he's landed. That's not who he was two years ago, but that's what he's decided to do, thinking, I think, this is my guess, and I don't know, that he's not going to do the inside straight. But if something happens to Trump, you want to be just just the most like Trump, you know, just the closest thing we could have to Trump. 
Um, and Trump's thrown enough baggage at DeSantis and Haley that the MAGA base doesn't love them anymore. So there's Vivek as like a wannabe. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I don't think it works for him because, you know, and you know this because you, you've been in this business a long time and you, you know, it's easy to think of something and hard to do it. So in theory, he could fit that box. But in practice, uh, frankly, if, if, if Trump were to disappear, I think DeSantis would come closer to picking up the Trump base than anybody else. Mm. Uh, and I think DeSantis's policies fit that. But you also at that point would have chaos. I mean, who knows how many candidates would emerge, except for a, a point. I, I always read Mark Halperin every day and, and his wide world of news and find it extraordinarily educational. And Halperin keeps making the point, there is an objective calendar and you can't get on the ballot. So if somebody decided, to, you know, he was talking about this in terms of Yunkin, governor of Virginia, somebody who tried right now to get into the game they wouldn't be able to get in the first half of the of all the primaries because they're already closed. Yeah, the GOP uh, and primaries. so if, you know if, if something did happen, it, it may well be that the only two realistic alternatives would be Nikki and and uh, DeSantis, and that would kind of, I mean that would be kind of an interesting fight to see the two of them go down the stretch, uh, arguing over the future of the country. Uh, but oh, I we forgot about Christie too. Think we forgot about Christie. He's also I running still. I think Christie is okay. I'm, I'm biased. I think he is so dislikable that his his ceiling is six or seven percent, uh, just because you watch him on stage and you just think, you know, uh, he has all the worst characteristics of Newsom and none of his charm. Well, you can't, you know, he's very much opposed to Trump, and the party belongs to Trump right now. For better or for worse, it's right. Trump's party, so it's a very hard position to be in. All right, I've got to ask you this before I let you go. So if you're DeSantis and or Haley and Vivek, those are the three we know are going to make the debate. Christie, we don't think so, but he could. They're, they're tracking a couple of polls where that, that that might make the door or might open the door. What do you do? I mean, I, I believe you must do something different. <laughs> you must do something else because whatever they've been doing, I realize Nikki Haley's in the middle of a boomlet, as you said, her poll numbers have gone up a little. She's gotten more money backing very late in the contest. So I'm going to guess she's probably not going to do too much. You know, she's not going to change, exchange her old behavior for new, but what about DeSantis? What about Vivek? What, what would you advise them to do? Well, I think they're, they have three different challenges. I mean, my advice to Vivek would be uh, discipline yourself to speak at half your current speed, hmm. uh, say fewer words and actually make sense because he talks way too fast and, and he babbles. Uh, so my advice, he's got to come across as much more mature than he currently is. Um, <clears throat> my advice to Nikki would be emphasize national security and foreign policy right now. You've got a war in Gaza. You've got Iran. You've got, and, the, and by the way, you may have noticed that the U.S. House voted in a veto override majority to freeze all of the $6 billion in Iranian money uh, so that even if Biden vetoes it, which he probably will, they'll override the veto. I thought that was mm -hmm. a significant bipartisan uh, shift. So she's in a good position to say, look, I've been at the United Nations. I've been in the middle of all this. This is how seriously we have to take the world. And to be sort of the, if, if you're worried about being safe, she's the right person. I think in DeSantis's case, he was onto something last night and he ought to go back to it. <clears throat> We've proven in Florida 
that we can have the best education program in the country through choice, that we can have great, a great environment, a great economy, uh, that parents can have the right to know what's going on with their children, that we can control crime, and that we actually can have streets with no feces. Yeah. Now, <laughs> if you would like America to resemble Florida, then I'm your candidate. And I think he would be better off. He has to do just well enough to come in second in Iowa. What, what will be the end for him is if Nikki comes in second in Iowa, and at that point, DeSantis will be gone as a candidate. Yeah, and she is she's surging. She's at least tied in a couple of the polls. It, it wasn't much of a race between right. them in Iowa, and now it is at just the wrong time, though there's still about five weeks to go, five or six, uh, until the caucuses begin. What a pleasure. Speaker Newt Gingrich, it's always great talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, that's great. And thank you for letting me uh, show you my my uh, screen. You know, I've never shown it to anybody else. I love this screensaver. <laughs> and I just want to share one last time. Uh, <clears throat> there's uh, Calista and uh, right in the middle, straight from Jersey Shore. And then, of course, it was taken by Jay Leno, which is why I have to keep uh, <laughs> Snooky, Calista, and Jay Leno is about all I can get in one, in one screen. He was saver. such but a gem. Thank you for I letting me Jay do that. Leno. Yeah, my, the pleasure is I all mine. Too. It was a scoop I never expected to get. <laughs> all the best. Let's talk soon. <laughs> all right. Take care. All Bye right. Bye. We will be right back with Mike, the situation, Sorrentino. Just stick around. Trust me. Hollywood is under siege, covertly compromised by a global adversary. The same Hollywood that sold the American dream to the world is now making nightmares a reality. The American way of life is being censored by the Chinese Communist Party. Some films have scenes completely altered. Other films have lost their funding or been canceled altogether. Some actors have been banned from China for supporting human rights. Hollywood Takeover is a documentary brought to you by the Epoch Times, revealing how the CCP has infiltrated major movie studios. Join Chris Fenton, a former Hollywood executive, and Tiffany Meyer, an investigative news reporter, through their journey in exposing how the film industry gradually lost its integrity on its path to profits. Don't miss the most important documentary ever made about Hollywood. For a limited time, watch the first 10 minutes for free on hollywoodtakeover.com mk. That's hollywoodtakeover.com mk. Jim, Jim Tan and Laundry. You're welcome to come with us. Jim Tan and Laundry? Nah. You drive me, driver. Let's go. These kids are robots. Jim Tanny Laundry. Every day since I got here. That's what they do every morning. Jim Tanny Laundry. You know, that's how they like make the guidos. You know, I like to look very fresh and mint when I go out. So, you know, everything goes into it. You know, you got to go to the gym the whole week, you know? You have to have a little color if you didn't go to the beach. And then the last thing that you need to take care of is the outfit, okay? Now, if the outfit is not looking good, then the whole package is off. And if you feel off, you're not going to have a good night. So how do you get the best results? GTL, baby. Gym Tan Laundry. Because if everything's put together and you feel great, you look great, awesome night. That's amazing. Welcome back to the Megan Kelly Show. It's almost the weekend, and that means it's time to get our fist pump on. Mike, the situation Sorrentino joins me now. Cannot wait to talk to him. You may know him as the hit star of the show Jersey Shore, which just completely dominated our culture for like three, four years. He's got quite a life story, which he recounts in his new memoir out later this month. It's called Reality Check. Making the best of the situation. Nicely done. How I overcame addiction, loss, 
and Prison. It's available for pre-order right now. What a fun Christmas gift this would be. Consider this right now. Reality check. It's fascinating. We're going to get into it all. Mike, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Definitely feels like the first time every time on uh, on air for sure. <laughs> that was an amazing little mashup of uh, GTL, which is one of the things you're known for. Jim Tan Laundry. Yeah. This was your thing long before Jersey Shore. Uh, yes, it was uh, definitely my lifestyle before Jersey Shore. And I'm sure it's probably the reason why uh, they casted me in uh, 2008. Okay. And we got to get into, first of all, that's a lot of gym. That explains all those muscles because you're, it's not just your abs that you're favorite for, the APAC that you're famous for. It's The muscles are everywhere, Mike. They're all over. And as I understand it, you can only get those at the gym. But the tanning, sir, what about in today's day and age with skin cancer? Yeah, I'll be honest with you. Um, I've just hit 41 and uh, I do still go tanning, but I do not tan the face. Okay. So, uh, I don't know if that, 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 I mean, it still puts me at risk probably for some skin cancer, but, uh, I do not tan the face. I, I spray tan most of the time. Yeah. You know what, when you're Italian, like you are, it's less of a risk. I'm, I'm part Italian, but I'm mostly Irish and that's, so I, I gotta be different about it than you are. Yeah. My wife says I don't even have to tan. She said, you normally have, you know, olive, uh, olive skin, but you know, sometimes I just like to go for, you know, the routine of it all. So I can't believe your life. As I was saying, when I was teasing the fact that you were coming on, I was like, I don't, I don't know anything about the situation. I, I wasn't a huge Jersey Shore watcher, but the show got so big, it bled out into contemporary society in a way you could not avoid. Yes. Everybody's heard of Jersey Shore, of the situation of Snooki, Speaker Gingrich included. Yeah, I saw and, that. that was uh, but then I heard about your life. It's like, the drugs and the prison and the possible mob and like a lot of stuff in there. You're like, you, your life has been very colorful, my friend, by any average standard. Would you agree? Yes. I feel like I have lived a hundred lives. I'm very grateful to be here today uh, telling you my story. And I, I feel that anybody that is watching uh, this show right now is definitely going to be in for a treat. <laughs> so now you didn't start off your life in... Jersey. You wound up there even before Jersey Shore. Didn't you come? You were originally in Staten Island. Yeah, I was uh, born in Staten Island and I moved to New Jersey when I was uh, seven years old. Okay. And did you notice any difference whatsoever? Because in my mind, those are exactly the same place. Um, they're definitely very similar places. Usually people that uh, are, you know, born in Staten Island, they eventually migrate to the Garden State uh, and naturally what me and my family did as well. Okay. So you write in the book that there may or may not, you can't confirm or deny, have been a mob connection at the parental level. Like your dad, what a bit, what business was he officially in? Um, he was an electrical engineer and he had his own business. But if you lived in Staten Island in the 80s, I mean, there was really no way of escaping it. I mean, it was a part of the culture. Um, it was all over the news. Um like I said, I, I, I'd have to say that directly or indirectly, there definitely was a tie there. Um, and, you know, in our home, there definitely was a, a love affair at all times with the mafia. And I'm sure that shaped the way that I, I grew up. Hmm. And maybe the way you thought about prison, where you would, you would do your own research. Oh, yes. A hundred percent. It's definitely how I handled prison, how I handled some of the uh, deals that were presented to me by the government. 
Um, you know, if you read the book, um, early on, I was presented with um, ratting out my brother for a lighter sentence, which was just uh, blasphemy to me. And um, we eventually uh, knew that it was going to have to take this to the end of the line. Hmm. All right, we're going to get to all that later. And you're one of your best friends in prison, who that was, because that, that's a fun part of your story, too. All right. Um, but before all that, you're the you're a young guy, you're grown up now in Jersey, you've left Staten Island, the fam's in Jersey. And I this is important to me personally, because when I married my husband, Doug, he was in he lived in Philly. He grew up in Philly. And the Jersey Shore is a big enclave yeah. for Philadelphia yeah. people. So, you know, yeah. Mike, I grew up running through my parents sprinkler in the backyard. I had no shore place once a year, though, we'd go yes. to Jersey Shore and we'd go yep. to Seaside Heights. That's yes. the place. That's where you guys were. It was yep. the highlight of my life. I mean, the Wildwood or the Seaside Heights fringe yep. shirt in the 80s. That was like considered the, the yep. peak of style. You you went to Seaside um, if you were in junior prom or or your senior prom. So um, that was the norm, you know, um, until we came along and we brought a little bit of the older crowd, the college kids. Um, but it's a thing around here. If you're from the Garden State or anywhere in the area, uh, when the when the seasons change and it becomes summertime, you go down to the shore. Right. You go down the shore. So that's what Doug's family did all his life. And the next thing I knew. He was taking me down the shore and now we spend our summers down the shore and we always talk about the show Jersey Shore because people are like, oh, Jersey. And like Everyone in New York goes to the Hamptons, oh, Jersey, which is fine yeah. by me because we don't want them coming. But you would be the first to say most of the Jersey Shore is not what was represented on the show Jersey Shore. Um, I mean, listen, it's definitely a subculture of Italians that was displayed on TV. I mean, it's obviously we don't represent everyone, but it was definitely um, a, a, a really a microscope look at um, the subculture that was, you know, in your 20s going out um, and MTV aired it and it, and it became a, a juggernaut. Uh, you know, it has the ratings for the biggest show ever on MTV. It transcends generations. The kids dress up as us for Halloween uh, still to oh, this wow. day. Um, and we turned 15 minutes of fame into 15 years as the show was still on and still number one on MTV on Thursdays, 8, 7 Central on MTV. Is that right to this day? To this day, it is still number one on Thursdays. We call it Jersey's uh, 8 p.m. It's the number one for MTV and sometimes on cable on Thursday night at 8 p.m. That's amazing. All right. So yeah. you love Seaside Heights. You're in Jersey. You're getting a little older. And you before you were on cast to be on the show, you had some other forays into what professional life might look like. One in particular was kind of controversial. And uh, you try to keep it a secret from your parents or at least your mother. And tell us what that was. Uh, are we talking about the uh, stripping endeavor? That's the one. Yes. Um, you know what? I was uh, in college at the time and I also was a waiter. I was trying to be a fitness model. And my first uh, introduction to going in that direction was stripping. Um, and I was just in amazing shape. Um, women loved me, um, and I thought that it would be a good idea to uh, make some spare cash 
and um, and also get out for the night. Eventually, my mom, she found out that I was stripping because one of her girlfriends was at the venue that I was stripping and she actually was the birthday girl. So I was the uh, new young stripper coming out uh, and you put the birthday chair out uh, for the birthday girl. And, you know, you're sort of grinding up on, on this uh, lucky woman. And then next thing you know what, I come home and my mom has an umbrella in her hand. Um, and back when I, when you're in the eighties, you know, mom could have had an umbrella, maybe a wooden spoon or something. And uh, she asked me where I was, where I was. And I told her, oh, I was just uh, picked up an extra shift at the restaurant. And, but she knew because she got the call from her girlfriend and um, she uh, was quite upset. Uh, <laughs> and uh, my father was in the corner smirking because um, you know, usually he was the enforcer. He was the, um, the, the person, uh, doing the, um, the enforcing whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So was that hard for you? Like, I mean, most guys aren't confident enough in their dancing at a minimum to accept a job as a stripper, forget the confidence in the bod. So had you taken dancing? Like, how, how does one become a stripper? Well, I mean, when you are an introduction to a stripper, they usually give the new guys the jobs of the birthdays. And the birthdays are really easy because you're really just sort of grinding on stage on a chair. So that's kind of your introduction to gaining experience and gaining comfort on stage in front of a stage of ladies, pretty much. And they were easy to please. It's like, honestly, we, we don't, we know most guys don't have those moves. Uh, you know what? It was easy as a stripper. I was unbelievably shredded. I mean, you looked at my abs and you thought they were implants. Uh, partly the reason why I got, you know, casted and I was world famous. But um, even before I was famous, women were definitely throwing themselves at me. All right. We're going to need to know how exactly they got so shredded because they really were shredded. It tr was a true eight pack. Was there an unusual routine? Like what? What does it take to have that? I think it was just genetics, but also uh, I love to be in the gym. Um, so, you know, um, I would go to the gym for um, probably 90 minutes to two hours, uh, at least five times a week, sometimes two a days. I would eat good. I would eat meals every two hours. And I was just um, I was young. I was unbelievably shredded. Um, and people always used to come up to me and they used to be like, listen, man, you should have done something with those abs. And I was like 25 years old and like I was over the hill or something. I'm like, what do you mean I should have done something? And that eventually pushed me to to send photos in for modeling and try to mm. go for TV. All right. That's a good place to leave it. Quick break back with the situation right after this. Hollywood is under siege, covertly compromised by a global adversary. The same Hollywood that sold the American dream to the world is now making nightmares a reality. The American way of life is being censored by the Chinese Communist Party. Some films have scenes completely altered. Other films have lost their funding or been canceled altogether. Some actors have been banned from China for supporting human rights. Hollywood Takeover is a documentary brought to you by the Epoch Times, revealing how the CCP has infiltrated major movie studios. Join Chris Fenton, a former Hollywood executive, and Tiffany Meyer, an investigative news reporter, through their journey in exposing how the film industry gradually lost its integrity on its path to profits. Don't miss the most important documentary ever made about Hollywood. For a limited time, 
Watch the first 10 minutes for free on HollywoodTakeover.com slash MK. That's HollywoodTakeover.com slash MK. Was that the end of the stripping after mom found out and got you with the umbrella or did, did it continue? Yeah, no, no. Once once mom uh, came at me with the umbrella, I was like, ah, you know what? Uh, that was the uh, end of my stripping days and I retired. My producers want me to ask, how did the mother who clearly recognized you of, or the, you know, the friend of your mother who clearly recognized you, how did she allow you to give her a lap dance for God's sake? I was really good looking. <laughs> <laughs> she couldn't resist. She was only human. Okay, yeah, I'm no. Um, I mean, I mean, I don't know if you've ever went to a male review before, but um, the, the women in there, they really uh, let loose. Okay. They're raucous. Um, believe it or not, I've never seen male strippers. I've seen female strippers. It was one of those things when I was young, I got it kind of dragged along with the guys I worked with. Um, and all I kept wanting to do was an intervention on all the young women, like sweetheart, you don't have to make your money this way. I could help you. <laughs> I was such a drag. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes, so, so the other thing you were confused about, like what you did that was controversial when you were young is you got into the sale of drugs as I yes. understand it, before you actually took any, you were kind of dealing them while you weren't taking them. Is that, do I have my facts right? Yes, I was uh, ironically a really good hustler. Um, maybe I turned to that from my upbringing and uh, the love affair I've, you know, in the 80s with uh, mafia. Um, but uh, I eventually turned to drug dealing um, probably around 19 um, and, uh, that's where it all started. How does that happen? Right? Like how does a normal, nice kid living in Jersey wind up dealing drugs? It's, is it hard to get the drugs? Who do you sell the drugs to? How do you let people know that you're a drug dealer? Um, well, I've had various connects over my lifetime as a young man. Um, sometimes it was cousins that lived in Brooklyn or Staten Island and I was in New Jersey. Um, and if you had that connect, it was very sought after. Um, and so that would be the, you know, you would drive over to the bridge in Brooklyn because you were family, uh, on consignment, uh, um, they would give you the drugs. So let's just say 30 pounds of marijuana, which would be valued at close to, uh, close to a hundred thousand dollars. Um, you would have seven days to pay back, you know, said debt. Um, and then you would go and you would slowly come back to Jersey. Uh, there would obviously be a process of transportation to make sure that you were successful transporting a hundred thousand dollars worth of drugs that was given to you on consignment. Um, so we had a little bit of a system going, um, because we know that it was a very valued package. So we would put, um, we would have three cars. The first car would be the lead car and then would be sandwiched in between the product with the uh, the car with the product with the hundred thousand dollars worth of uh, product in it. And then you had the follow vehicle. Um, and we did that because um, if there was any uh, police presence, uh, we thought to ourselves that if the follow vehicle uh, started to become erratic, 
Uh, they would swerve. They would go out of the way. We'd, they would just get a parking ticket because we didn't want to get caught in a, in a drug charge. So that was the thought process on that. And then we'd come back to Jersey. We'd whack it up with the crew. Uh, maybe you would have 10 guys under you. They all would take, you know, five pounds here, six pounds there, seven pounds. It all would add up. And then everybody would have seven uh, seven days to give get that hundred thousand dollars up. Wow! And then, like, how does how do you figure out who the buyers are? How do you find buyers? Um, well, that wouldn't be my responsibility. I, um, you know, it's like a, a hierarchy of a tree. Um, so if I had let's just say ten guys under me, uh, my job would to be to to find those guys. To take the five pounds, to take the seven that would to, to, to that would take up to the thirty or, or or forty pounds, whatever I was getting, if they were trustworthy enough and they had a track record of producing and earning, um, I wouldn't question them because underneath them would be people that were taking maybe one pound, a quarter pound, a half a pound, and they may might have had ten guys underneath them, um, and and we were running this business for quite some time. These all seem like possible possible avenues for cops to come in. You know, like someone's going to get caught. Someone's going to yeah, knock out the person above them. So wasn't that scary? You know, you'd previously been a legitimate law-abiding kid, and now suddenly you're dealing yeah. drugs. Like this, this is the kind of stuff that could get in jail for decades. Yes, it was a very tempting lifestyle um, for a college kid. Um, I was just a very uh, risky a uh, carefree young man. And I would, I, you know, if you told me not to do something, I would do it twice and take pictures. That was the type of kid I was. Um, so I, there was a particular time period where I was doing this business um, for months and months, maybe a year and a half. And I got tipped off uh, by a family member that said, yeah, you were one of the biggest distributors at the time um, in central Jersey and that they were uh, gunning to, to take you down. And once I heard that, um, I definitely cooled it off and, um, you know, uh, cooled it off means uh, you stop for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And was it just marijuana or was it other drugs too? It was marijuana for a while. Um, and, and, and I really didn't have any issues, um, you know, thank God. But eventually once I started to move into cocaine, um, and then once I started to move into prescription pills, that's when the problems started to happen. Hmm. What, do, how do you resolve that morally? Right? Like it's, it's, if it's grown people doing it, it's their Yeah. Yeah. They, 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 exactly. Right. Yeah. That's how you resolve it morally. Yes. The first one was, uh, it's grown naturally. It's not hurting anybody. I'm a college kid. I'm in, I'm in suburban America. I have cousins that are Italian that are giving me this on consignment. I'm doing it well. I'm a great earner. People, uh, they like me. I'm not hurting anybody. That's how you resolve it. Do you, do you still think the same way about it? What if my son was to do something like that? Yeah. Or just even about, you know, your own, you look back at that year and a half. I don't know. Um, do you think I think it was a year and a half and I was a very risky young man. I'm, I'm lucky to, to be standing here today talking about my story. I think I've been spared by the almighty above to share my story and my light to others that might be uh, suffering from either the disease of addiction or just bad decisions. Yeah. You immerse yourself in that kind of culture. It's very tempting it can lead to bad places. And for you, ultimately, it was prescription drugs that that you got addicted to. 
Um, yes, early on, um, once I started uh, selling the weed, then it moved to cocaine, then it moved to prescription pills. Once I got to the prescription pills, um, I had a little bit of a taste of it. And they say never get high on your own supply uh, definitely hold, held a lot of weight because as soon as I, I had that first taste of an opioid, um, to be honest with you, truthfully, um, I loved it. And, um, and, and, the, and the love affair with the devil had started. Mm, it's such a slippery slope. My God. Can I just ask you quickly, what do you think of where things have gone today? Because I know you, you write in the book about taking a Percocet and how you enjoyed that today. You, you could take a Percocet for you get from a drug dealer and you could die, right? It's laced yes. with fentanyl. That's my yeah, friend, Eric Bowling's charity. One, one pill can kill. That's what happened to his son. Because yeah, they're getting laced really, with this stuff. Yeah, it's really bad right now. Um, you know, all the drugs, uh, the cocaine, the pills, um, even a pill that's not even an opiate, it could be a, a benzo. Uh, sometimes they're 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 laced with uh, fentanyl, and people are just dying. So it's a really really bad time. I, I know the um, the rates for um, addiction are are through the roof right now, and have been since since COVID. Mm. I, one of the most powerful interviews I ever did when I was on NBC was of a mom, just so people know. And my son actually just recently repeated the story at a school parent child thing on drugs and addiction and peer pressure. So it's sinking in. And I want the other parents to hear this because you can tell your, your kids the same. The mom came on, her two teenage sons came home from college at this point. I think they were 18 and 20, uh, about, and they went out to a party. She waited up until they got home, like most parents would do. And she went to bed. They were home. They were safe. And the next morning they needed to leave. So she went down to the one son's bedroom and he was passed out. She thought ultimately she realized he, he had died and she ran to the other son's bedroom to try to get his help with the first son. And it was the same. He also oh. had died both of her sons. And it was because of this, Mike, they had bought, um, I think it, it was something, you know, ostensibly mild, like a Percocet or I forgive me, my memory doesn't, uh, anyway, it could be pot, it could be Percocet. I thought it was a pill, but it had been laced and both kids yeah. had a dealer come, give them the pill at the house. They took it, I mean, in their own home and they were dead by morning. It really is true. One pill can kill. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so sad. Um, and, and that's how I kind of got started too, just really by experimenting, you know, I really didn't have a bad childhood or anything like that. I was a young kid, uh, you know, living in suburban America and I was just curious. That's it. That's terrifying, right? It's terrifying. Cause we, we tell ourselves, oh, you know, if you're, if your kid's happy, if you're a loving parent, they won't start, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do something like this, but you're yeah, telling no. us that's not true. No, no, it was pure out of curiosity, uh, and and it definitely wasn't out of uh, peer pressure. When I was uh, in college, I was more of a leader than than a than a follower. You know, I was always a popular kid. I wanted to always push the limits of what I couldn't do and and what I could do. Mm. Well, so you got hooked on opioids, and that is a very tough addiction to beat. So, about how old are you now at this point? Uh, the first time around, I was probably uh, around uh, 26. This was right before I was discovered for TV. 
Okay. And did you go to rehab before Jersey Shore? You, would, I think you had, I right? You went to rehab. Did. And, and I so did. You, go ahead. Yeah. No, right before Jersey Shore, the, uh, about a year and a half prior, um, I had went to rehab for the first time. And that was uh, the same reason why uh, me and my college sweetheart, who is now my wife, had broken up. We were going out for four years. Eventually, that addiction had taken over my life, and my life was unmanageable. So me and my uh, then-girlfriend uh, broke up, and then I had to uh, go to rehab, and that uh, is where my journey started. Mm. All right. So you get out of rehab and now you need to make money legitimately. You know, you have to you have to pay the bills and so on. And you saw a flyer, a, a casting call flyer for Jersey Shore. Is that your first? Um, was yeah. Uh, you know what? As soon as I got out of rehab, I, I really wanted to get back with my ex-girlfriend who we just flashed on the screen. She was like the love of my life and she inspired me. Um, and I really didn't want her to be the one that got away. And she started to continue her schooling. She went uh, uh, to fashion school and it kind of sparked me to go for my dreams. And so I started to um, send photos into New York City at the top um, uh, fitness and underwear modeling agencies because I was uh, just in really, really good shape. And then eventually um, I eventually was signed um, to a fitness and underwear agency agency. Um, and then, um, I saw that flyer that you just spoke of. And what did the flyer say? Like, do you remember what it was advertising that spoke to you? It said, uh, the hottest guidos and guidettes in the tri-state area <laughs> come to, uh, Harris, uh, in Atlantic city. Yes. And it was a, yes, <laughs> call. I love this. Yeah. This is amazing. So you go, and was it a collection of the hottest Guidos and Guidettes uh, oh, in Jersey? Oh, for sure. Everybody in that venue at, at Harris, Atlantic City, were the hottest Guidos and Guidettes in the area. Everybody had a six-pack. All the girls were good-looking. All the guys were good-looking. And I had just come off a high from getting signed from a, from a uh, fitness and underwear agency. And um, I was really excited that maybe I was on the right track in life and I wasn't drug dealing and stripping anymore. Right. So you, did you, I assume you had to be interviewed. What, uh, how did that go? Uh, I was interviewed and they loved me at the time. This was uh, 2008 and um, it was uh, supposed to be a, a VH1 show. Um, Viacom owns MTV and VH1, but at first VH1 uh, had it. Um, I was definitely um, told that I was the number one pick, uh, the first guy casted, and they wanted to shoot what's called uh, a sizzle tape, which is almost like a, a little preview of the idea for the show that they wanted to do. Okay, so you wind up getting cast, and then you get together with the other castmates, all of whom would go on to become literally household names. Again, Snooki is the former House Speaker's screensaver. Do you know how many famous people and world leaders he has met? And she yeah. is the screensaver. I mean, that I tells know. you everything you need to know about the success yep. of this show. So we have a clip from, uh, I think this is from the first episode, when the cast first arrives in Seaside Heights, New Jersey, and meets for the first time. Here's a bit of that. Somebody in there? The party's here. How are you? Cool. Hug. 
Nice to meet How you, are you. I'm like, wow. She was like a little miniature chihuahua painted with some spray paint black. Yeah. You guys drinking or what? Yeah, we just yeah, took a it's shot. right here. Woo! Give me a shot. <laughs> Honestly, bro, it doesn't get any better than this. Unless we had a stripper pole like right in the middle of the yes. room. Yeah, don't bring home any wanksters, girls. Yeah. Don't we bring home any wanksters. That's all there is in Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> so what was that? What, what did you make of your fellow castmates? Um, I was on, you know, such a high because it had taken a year to sell that show and I was a part of it from the conception. So I went in thinking like, you know, I had all this confidence, but when I got there, um, it was an amazing experience, you know, and I wanted to make the most of it. Um, I never thought that, you know, that 15 minutes of fame would turn into 15 years. Um, but I remember leaving, um, that show or the last day of filming and I was like, you know, once America sees this, I really feel that this is going to change things. And sure enough, once the show aired, um, it was like lightning in a bottle, record ratings. Um, a year later, they would give us like a million dollar raise, the first kids to really get that type of money. Um, and uh, we were like, you know, changing the culture. How so? How do you think you changed the culture? I mean, it was everywhere. I mean, you know, we were on... Um, every channel, all the news is, I mean, um, I mean, every radio station, everybody was talking about Jersey Shore. We were getting 9 million, uh, 9 million was the ratings that we were getting, um, oh which is like Game of Thrones numbers. And nobody had ever done that before. Um, I was the GQ man of the year or, or the sensation of the year, which is one of, they actually, uh, they pick many people. I think there's like five or six of them, but in 2010. So, um, we were breaking the mold because in the beginning, nobody wanted to think of reality stars as anything other than, you know, uh, something that they didn't want to watch. <laughs> mm -hmm. What was it, do you think about Jersey Shore that people found so compelling, so must see? I think that it was just so raw and just so unfiltered. Everybody, including myself, was, you know, their authentic selves. And then all of a sudden it's like hair pulling back. Oh! oh! It was, you know, a once in a, in a generation type of show. Even to this day, uh, all the high school kids every year, they go back and they watch that, the the first Jersey Shore uh, franchise. Uh, and they, they all dress up as Snooki in the situation for Halloween. It's really extremely flat, flattering. It's, it's wild. Now, did you get along with the other castmates? Um, I mean, the first one I wasn't really using. Um, so yeah, the first one to a certain extent, you know, I did get along. At the end of the day, you know, if you're in a house with, you know, eight people, um, life's going to happen on life's terms and you're not always going to get along with everyone, but that that's what makes good TV though. Mm -hmm. So then there comes a time, then you did start using again. And there yes. comes a time in the series where you went over to Italy for one of the seasons and you had a problem because you were a drug addict and you couldn't exactly pack all your drugs in a suitcase and do the carry-on. So what did you do? Um, every season, including uh, starting in season two uh, to Miami to all the way to season uh, five to Italy, 
was literally like Mission Impossible, trying to sneak the drugs into different states, uh, different countries, past security, past TSA. Um, it was uh, insanity. Um, and if we're speaking about Italy, um, I had to think long and hard how I was going to get by that one because, uh, you know, we're we're traveling across the world here. So I thought to myself um, that some of the other ways that I had used in previous other seasons were not going to work. Um, so I tried a different method traveling to Italy. I um, I I disassembled my shoe. Um, and I put uh, two Altoid cases in each shoe. Each shoe had 200 pills. So obviously one pair of shoe would have 400 Rocasets. If you know what a Rocaset is, it is a 30 milligram oxycodone, which technically is three Percocet 10s. Um, it's, it's a very powerful, um, you know, um, uh, painkiller. And, um, and I put that, that, pair of shoes along with 20 other shoes in a suitcase so that it would be hard to distinguish that I was actually smuggling upwards of 400 um, oxycodone pills in uh, a pair of shoes across country lines. And, uh, and then once I got over to Italy and I got past, I guess, maybe TSA or maybe um, past immigration, um, then I had to get past um, the producers and security protocols of MTV, and they were gunning for me since season two, and rightfully so. Um, you know, I was rarely doing the right thing. Um, and once MTV started to frisk and go through all of my belongings, which they they had a protocol. Um, that's when they finally got to maybe my seventh suit suitcase, which they were already fatigued. And then I said, oh, those are the, my favorite shoes right there. Uh, the black feelers. Let me grab those and put those on now. So then I would take them out of the equation. And that's how I, I um, that's how that caper was. Oh my gosh. Was it, were you sweating it out? I'm sure I was stressed. Um, but you're, 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 you're looking at somebody who is doing these type of risky behaviors year after year, season after season, I'm getting paid millions on the number one show or the number one reality show in the country. Um, so it's almost like I kept getting away with it. Obviously we, we kind of know where the story progresses. Um, eventually uncle Sam would uh, be the one to straighten me out, but, um, it would take a few years to, uh, before we got there. Mm. And I'm going to get back to what happened in Italy. But in the meantime, as you point out, you're you're a star. I mean, you are like the situation no longer just means the situation in America. It conjures an individual, you. And uh, so that's that's the level of fame you guys hit. So you're doing things like we just talked about Jay Leno with Newt Gingrich and how Snooki was on. You also yeah. went on Jay Leno. And as I understand it, Jay and others pulled you aside at various oh, yeah. courses in your public appearances to say, Mike, what's going on? Can you talk about that? I mean, yeah. I mean, listen, if, if, um, for instance, your show, you know, if, if we were doing it in person, you'd see me enter your show and, you know, uh, backstage and I got the glasses on there, you know, tipped, 
Um, my my pupils are pinpointed. You can tell from a mile away when somebody is that high. And I was always high. And I, I went on Jay Leno's show a lot, um, probably close to a dozen times. And wow. during that time period, um, and I remember always Jay pulling me aside and you could just see the concern that he knew I was, I was just going down this path. And that path only led to destruction. Everybody knows. I mean, if I bumped into somebody like myself today, I would pull myself aside and be like, hey, hey wait a second, kid. Are, are you okay? Uh, you know, are you making the right decisions? This may not last forever. Are you saving your money? Like there are certain things that, you know, people like Jay Leno, uh, Whoopi Goldberg always used to pull me aside on the on, on the view. Um, I remember um, another person was... Um, and I'm such a big fan of him. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. has a similar uh, story to mine uh, with addiction. I, I saw him on the uh, Today Show. And you're always rubbing el elbows with these A-listers. And you saw me and you just knew I wasn't doing the right thing. Mm. What Do you think like Robert Downey Jr. Jr. recognized that you were drug addled oh, and was trying one, to... Oh, one, million, one million percent. I mean, when I see people today... Um, I, I can spot it a mile away, you know, that they're not doing the right thing and people don't look you in the eye and they're quick and they're shifty and they're, you know, you can just, you see all the red flags. And, and I had to put it in the book, the people that I rubbed elbows with that didn't have to pull me aside, you know? Um, yeah. and, and they did anyway. Can you go on about how you recognize this? Cause I will tell you, this is a, an Achilles heel of mine. I never know when someone's on drugs, really? I'll just be like, what a weird dude. And my husband will be, be like, honey, he was, he was on drugs. I'm like, he was, how do you know? Yeah. What, how, oh my God. Like, what are yeah. the signs? Shifty. You said that's one they're shifty in their, I mean, in their yes. speakers. If somebody, doesn't, if somebody doesn't look you in the eyes for more than a second, they're trying to hide something. Obviously, obviously, if you look at their eyes, um, a lot of the times if the pupil is pinpoint, that's opiates. And then if they are very large, that's a possibility that it could be cocaine or an upper or maybe um, it could be an Adderall or some, or some sort of speed. Um, you know, sometimes if that attitude and that dismissiveness and that it's too loud, or, you know, that also can be a, a sign where somebody is just got a, a I don't want to say douchebag on 1000 attitude, but I'm going to say it. Mm hmm. Okay. That's helpful to know. All right. So back yeah. to Italy, you had packed, you thought adequately for your lengthy stint over yes. there to shoot this yeah. season, but it turned out your drugs ran out. You had not packed adequately. I guess you were going through them pretty fast. And then a yeah. famous thing happened on the show where you mm -hmm. had a confrontation with a fellow castmate. You were, you write in the book about how you would run out of the pills. And so you were, you know, detoxing in an unsafe way, essentially. Yes. Um, and yeah, this is what happened. You you had a fight with Ronnie, and here's what happened. It's SOT 23. You would hit me? You would hit me? You would hit me? You would hit me, tough guy? You would have do it? You would have done with bed? Yeah, you would have done with You would have Stop. Oh. God, so for the listening audience, he headbutted the wall hard and there was committed. absolutely no give. Committed. Yes. Um, yes. In that moment, um, I was 
going through withdrawals and and I wasn't feeling good. Um, we had just come from the club and to try to lessen those withdrawals, I had uh, drank copious amounts of alcohol, which really didn't work. And then me and Ronnie, who really didn't get along over the years, he definitely probably saw me in a vulnerable state. I was like, today's the day it's going down. And sure enough, that's what happened right there. Um, I went into the wall, which wasn't sheetrock. It was probably, uh, you know, 4,000 year old uh, cement from the time of Caesar. And uh, I got a sprained neck and a sprained concussion and then eventually rushed to the hospital in Italy where uh, ironically they had to give me um, a opiate against MTV's uh, advice. Cause I remember MTV uh-huh. didn't want that. But they had to. Oh gosh. I mean, was that rock bottom for you? Was that your aha moment or no? Um, that was one of the rock bottom moments. Um, the rock bottom moment came uh, a few years later in 2015, but this was like the start of it. Um, you know, I still had millions and millions of dollars. The show was so huge. I had endorsement after endorsement, uh, my own ab cream and and laundry bags and lollipops and bobbleheads. I even got my own Christmas ornament that I still have to this day. It's probably on that tree behind me. <laughs> Would you please uh, send me but, one? I want one of those. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. But uh, yeah, rock bottom would come a little later, but this was definitely a sign that it was the shooting star was definitely starting to go in the other direction. Okay. Let's hold it there. Uh, another quick break and more with Rock Bottom and God Bless Redemption coming up next. Also, we'll get to Donald Trump and his role in the situation's life. Believe it or not, he's got a couple connections to him. We'll get there. Hey, everyone. It's me, Megan Kelly. Mark your calendars. News Nation, Sirius XM, December 6th in a live primetime event. The News Nation Republican primary debate. Sirius XM's Megan Kelly returns to the moderator's seat. I'll ask the questions you want to hear. Real issues, tough questions, every contender. Because if you want to be the leader of the free world, you better be ready to give America the answers they're looking for. Live from the University of Alabama, the News Nation Republican primary debate. Moderated by Sirius XM's Megan Kelly and News Nation's Elizabeth Vargas. December 6th, 8 p.m. Eastern. Watch it on News Nation, America's fastest growing cable news network. Find News Nation on your screen at joinnn.com or listen on Sirius XM Triumph's Channel 111. Go to SiriusXM.com slash MKShow to subscribe and get three months free. Offer details apply. The News Nation Republican primary debate. See you on the debate stage. To find News Nation on your TV, go to joinnn.com. Hollywood is under siege, covertly compromised by a global adversary. The same Hollywood that sold the American dream to the world is now making nightmares a reality. The American way of life is being censored by the Chinese Communist Party. Some films have scenes completely altered. Other films have lost their funding or been canceled altogether. Some actors have been banned from China for supporting human rights. Hollywood Takeover is a documentary brought to you by the Epoch Times, revealing how the CCP has infiltrated major movie studios. Join Chris Fenton, a former Hollywood executive, and Tiffany Meyer, an investigative news reporter, through their journey in exposing how the film industry gradually lost its integrity on its path to profits. Don't miss the most important documentary ever made about Hollywood. For a limited time, watch the first 10 minutes for free on hollywoodtakeover.com mk. That's hollywoodtakeover.com mk. 
Where did the situation come from? Um, I got that name um, probably a couple months before my first casting call with VH1. At the time, my nickname was Mikey Abs in college. But um, once I got signed to a fitness and modeling agency in New York City, uh, I went out to celebrate down at the shore over in Seaside. And um, I, you know, I was so shredded that, um, you know, my abs looked like they were implants. And I was down at the shore. I had no shirt on. I was with the fellas. Um, and I was walking down the street and a couple that uh, were holding hands, they walked by me and the female was like, oh, my God, honey, look at his abs. Uh, and my boy's like, oh, my God, damn, that's a situation. I'm like, yeah, you know what? I'm the situation. And then next, thing you know, what, a week or two later, when I had an interview with uh, uh, MTV, uh, they asked me if I had a, a nickname. I told them the situation. They said, oh, my God, that's brilliant. Do you have a trademark? <laughs> I didn't have a trademark at the time. But as soon as I left their office, I eventually got my first lawyer and trademarked it. It is brilliant. By the way, when you got the job, when the when you were cast, we didn't we didn't tell the audience what happened with Lauren at the time. She she was not too pleased about yeah. you, about you getting this role and actually gave you an ultimatum. And uh, you tell me whether you made the right choice. Yeah, um, uh, we, we definitely made the right choice at the time. Um, my main uh, priority was to get back with Lauren, uh, but I eventually landed the uh, job of my life, which was I was offered the contract by MTV to be in the first season of Jersey Shore. I was so excited that possibly my dreams were coming true, and I was so proud of myself for throwing this Hail Mary and it being completed. But then I also wanted to take that news back to my my ex-girlfriend and, and, and get her back, and I told her. I said, listen, I got to go on this reality show. And we were about to get back together. And she said, listen, if you're going to go on this show, I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think we're going to last. I don't want to be that girlfriend that is home and having her boyfriend on a reality show cheating on her um, and me crying at home. And she was 100% right. It was the right girl at the, at the, at the wrong time. Eventually, we would reconnect uh, a couple years later in 2013, and we would never look back. Mm. So one of the things that you were asked to do, you talked about the number of talk shows that you went on and the magazine covers you were on. One of the weirdest things I think that came your way was you were asked to participate in one of the Comedy Central roasts. You know, they had those roasts where they bring mm -hmm. in celebs to roast another celeb and yep. you were chosen to roast, tell them who? Donald Trump. <laughs> This is back in what, 2009? 2011. Okay, 11. So long before, you know, he became a presidential candidate and all that. And how did it go? Um, I mean, um, he paid me extremely well. Um, I got six figures just to show up for the day. Uh, probably, you know, a, a very amazing paycheck. They, they flew me out um, in tr one of Trump's jets. And um, they were extremely nice to me. Um, and uh, but when I got there, I was so high that I, I really didn't have good tone and di and good delivery on stage. I mean, I, I said the lines, but it wasn't good tone and delivery for comedy. And I eventually would get booed. Um, I mean, everyone still loved me and I took photos with everyone and I made a ton of money. But technically, that would be 
um, definitely a learned lesson to to read the material and know what you're doing before you do it. Oh, here is a little bit of you in that performance, 2011, SOT 22. People are hating on him because Trump is always firing people, but it's kind of okay because he completely let himself go anyway. Donald, <laughs> I'll say this though, your wife is hot. The best part is she married you for love. Yup, she loves money. <laughs> oh, hey, what are you gonna do? <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, Jim Ross came on stage to try to uh, save me, but um, I was so high. I mean, I could probably look at myself right there and and say that I was definitely on a good six to eight rock sets at that particular time. I did oh, not look man. at the material that they gave it to me, um, and um, if they would have gave me the material today, I probably would have read it and said some of it was good, some of, some of it was bad, and I obviously would have practiced my material, my yeah. tone, and my degree, but it was a learned so lesson did, early in my career. Did you and Trump keep in touch at all? Like, once he became president, did you ever call him up? Or No, I, I was thinking about, I think around the time that uh, he was president, I was in prison, and I was thinking about contacting. I remember telling my team that we, we should probably contact uh, President Trump uh, for a pardon when they sent me to prison, <laughs> and now, but I, I, and I never did, no. And now the next time uh, that he's going to probably be president, he'll he'll be the one in prison. So it could be like full circle. Oh, God, he could actually oh, be God. president yeah. and be yeah. in prison. Yeah. Those They're two things could happen trying. at once. They're you could give trying. him some pointers. And yep. so tell us how you did wind up in prison. That was post the end of Jersey Shore. How, what happened? Yes. Um, well, I mean, if you read the book on the first page of the book, um, I'm at Christmas Eve dinner. It's 2010. Uh, I just made $5 million uh, about um, I have endorsement after endorsement. There's a Ferrari and a Bentley outside. Mom's making uh, uh, clams oregonata uh, and linguine for the seven fishes for Christmas. The black sheep of the family was now world famous. And my brother came up to me and said, hey, it's time to file the taxes. Uh, and it was sort of like, oh, man, really? Because the year before, I didn't make enough money to, to even file taxes. I was a young kid. I didn't make enough money to now fast forward to the $5 million the next year, pretty much. Um, it's a big difference. And I remember my brother saying, oh, maybe you can get him next year. As soon as he said that, I'm like, yeah, let's get him next year. And that one decision on the first page of the book would end up haunting me for a good 10 to 15 years. Mm, so it was tax evasion. Uh, and how long yes, were you sentenced yes. to go to jail for? I was sentenced for eight months in uh, federal prison. Um, but even before that, I didn't even think that they were going to give me prison time, to be honest with you. Uh, the plea bargain that I accepted was in the zone for probation and community service, and I had zero priors. So eventually when they gave me all of the above, I had to be accountable and handle it with grace and class, but it was definitely unexpected because I was the first person I believe in the state of New Jersey to be in that zone and get prison time. So they made an example. Oh of it. I had to just uh, accept it. Were you terrified going off to prison? Um, I'll be honest with you. Um, I wasn't. I wasn't. Uh, addiction was so much worse. Addiction was staring. You, the you devil were not clean. Face. You were not clean when you went off. No, no, I, wa I was clean. 
So what I'm saying is I, by the time I went off, I had faced the devil. I had faced addiction and I was, I was, I was championing addiction. So when I finally had to go to prison, I was already doing the right thing. I was already on the right track. I used that fresh pain as fuel to continue to do the right thing and use this to turn my L's into lessons. Um, and that's exactly what I did. Well, I like that. So out of nowhere and weirdly, one of your closest pals in prison would be somebody connected to Trump. Tell us who. Oh, uh, Michael Cohen. Yeah, Michael yeah, Cohen. Yeah, who's yeah, he was a chicken you really wanted from what I read in the yes. book. You wanted his chicken. He didn't eat chicken. What happened there? Uh, yes, yes. In uh, prison, Chicken Thursdays was a very coveted day. Uh, that was the day that you really got fed well. And food is king in prison. And when Michael Cohen first came into prison, along with the helicopters and and such uh, overhead, um, I heard a little story that he had a uh, a uh, chicken as a pet as a child, and that he didn't even eat chicken. So I'm like, all right, I might as well go up to him and persuade him to smuggle his chicken to me, so I had more protein, uh, and it could help me in my journey to being my my best self and losing some weight and come out looking like Rambo. Um, so I approached him. And did he give you the chicken? Um, he said he was going to give me the chicken. Uh, he's like, no problem, Mike, anything for you. Um, but then when it came time um, to actually give me the chicken, he was actually nowhere to be found. And then when I found him later on, I'm like, Mike, where's my chicken? And he's like, oh, man, they're on to us, man. They knew I was going to smuggle chicken for you. He's like, they would have thrown me in a shoe, which is a special housing unit um, if you do anything wrong. So I'm like, all right, Mike, no problem. It wasn't. I just thought that was a hilarious story, though. <laughs> it's an amazing story. So like Trump, you were also betrayed by Michael Cohen. There's a long list in his path. Um, OK, so you get out of prison. Good for you. You served your time. You get out of prison. And then amazingly, you really turn things around. As I understand it, you get back together with Lauren. And you get back on TV, too. Yes. Yep. Yep. Um, you know, we were um, we got back on TV. MTV was documenting uh, my prison release, my court case. Um, and then uh, I got a chance to really prove myself. I remained sober. I lost the weight. Uh, I became a better man in prison. Um, and then, you know, I got to, you know, a chance to start my own family in uh in 2018 and continuing when I got out of prison in 2019. Mm. All right. So the show that you were on, uh, on MTV, the new show is Jersey Shore Family Vacation. And yes. on this show, you're back with Lauren, the love of your life. She's been there through the peaks and valleys and you mm -hmm. decided you wanted to marry her and that you would, you asked them if they would put it on TV, like the moment. And it was yeah. one of the most emotional moments, as I'm told, by the for the cast, for the crew. We've got a little yeah. bit of it. Um, here it is. You're my best friend, my college sweetheart, my better half. Oh, come on. Look at that. You make me a better person. Please make me the happiest man on earth. Will you please marry me? Oh, my God, dude. He's doing it.
Now that Come woman must really love you. She must really love you. Yes. So how's that going? Um, it's good. Me and uh, Lauren just celebrated uh, five years of a happy, healthy marriage. I'm uh, eight years clean and sober uh, today. I just put on social media. We have two babies and another one on the way that's due in uh, March. That's amazing. Congratulations. Good for you. So now is that show still on? Like, how do you pay the bills present day? Um, yes, uh, we are on Thursdays. Uh, it's Jersey Shore Family Vacation. Uh, it is the number one show on MTV on Thursday and sometimes on cable. Um, and as of right now, we have our, our salary has increased back up to six figures per episode. That's how many episodes do you do in a season? Um, we usually do about 30 a year. That's amazing. Yeah. That I mean, talk about a comeback. That's so great, Mike. And are, is the whole cast there in the yes. in a uh, family I mean, vacation? Uh, yeah. Most recently, uh, Sam came back, who she was absent for ten years. Ron is back now. Um, again, the uh, the world has uh, grown up with us, and now we're in our thirties. I'm now forty one. We have families. It's 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 a lifestyle show. There's babies, baptisms, weddings. Who's getting divorced and uh, different businesses. And now, what you see now, I'm releasing a book, and my new nickname is the publication. The publication. I mean, it wasn't all smooth sailing, as I understand it. I th I think it was when you got out of prison, but you you considered, as I as I think you put it in the book breaking the emergency glass and doing something else to earn money with respect to a sex tape. What is that? Yes, true? that was right. That was right around the time when I, uh, obviously before I went to prison and that was, um, probably in 2013 or 14, uh, this, obviously there was, it was a monster court case, United States versus the situation. It literally said on the paperwork, on the court documents, the situation uh, had costed me about $1 million for lawyers to defend that case for a few years. Um, the one that then, you were convicted on, is that the one we're talking about? Uh, yeah, yeah, the one I was convicted on, yes. Okay, okay, and then know. eventually, um, I was bleeding money the you know around this time period and 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 more money was was coming out than it was going in and I had always had this sex tape and I know it sounds so crazy it even kind of sounds comical that the backup plan the emergency plan was that I had a sex tape it was a very wild sex tape with at least 3 participants and um at the time I had to sit down my team and be like okay um I have something in my safe and I, 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 it's, it was only in case of emergencies. I'm thinking about breaking it out. And then I told my team, I, I, uh, in the same room, uh, my, my wife or my then girlfriend was there and my mother, obviously they didn't approve of it. Your mother, my mother, my mother worked for my, my company at the time. Yes. They were in the same room, but, uh, they obviously didn't approve of it. You know, obviously everyone has wide eyes. Uh, and, um, and then I said it was an option as we went down the journey of selling said sex tape, you found, you find out a lot of stuff. You find out what you got to do, uh, what you shouldn't do. Um, and, and then I, I, I just didn't feel that, I mean, it sounds graphic, but the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. Mm. Wait, you say there were at least three participants. Do we, do we know the number yes. of participants? 
participants? <laughs> yes, there, it was at least three. Yes, it was three and me. Yes. Oh, three in addition to you. Yes, and me. Yeah. So is it still in the safe? Um, I cannot confirm or deny. I'd like to leave that part uh, of my life uh, in the past, but um, I, like I said, we're now. <laughs> Uh, reminiscing about uh, some of the contents of this crazy book. Um, and it's really a page turner. And I had to, you know, be full disclosures and I had to be raw and unfiltered and say at one particular time when I was bleeding money, I had the emergency sex tape in the safe and I actually thought about uh, revealing it. And it's like I said, it's kind of makes you chuckle a little bit to think like what person has an emergency sex tape and is going to release Kim Kardashian, it. Paris exactly, Hilton. Yes. Yes, yeah, yes, it worked out fine exactly. for them. I, I understand yep. why your mind went there. So in the time we have left, now that the book is done, it's about to come out, what did you learn about yourself? You look back at this crazy ride you've had over the past 15. I mean, it's a crazy ride. I mean, I think that I've lived a man of, of 100 lives. Uh, I'm very grateful to be here uh, right now telling you my story. I think this book uh, is, a, is a page turner. It's going to entertain. Uh, it's going to shock people. And it's also going to inspire people because inside I detail how I recovered from a, a debilitating uh, addiction. And I think it's going to save uh, uh, millions of lives. And it's going to eventually be a movie one day. Yeah, you don't seem in any way bitter, angry, down. And I realize your life is great right now, but it just seems like you're somebody who's got a naturally good attitude, notwithstanding the many challenges that you've kind of brought on yourself, but you yes. managed them. Yeah. And look at you yes. uh, back yes. on top. Um, all, all the best to you with it. Yeah, thank you. I'm definitely an example of the comeback is greater than the setback. And um, it's not about, you know, uh, what happens to you in life. It's, it's more about, you know, how you react to what happens to you in life. So that's exactly um, right. I'm, I'm get back up. One. Either you get back up or you don't. Mike, yep. thank you. The book is Reality Check. You can pre-order it now at MikeTheSituationBook.com. Have a great weekend. Back Tuesday from Alabama. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear.